Ever, did you ever run away from home as a child? I know a lot of, probably a lot of you did. Uh, I, when I was 13, I, I came downstairs, and I think I woke up, and I thought, I'm going to be especially stupid today. And so I sat down with my father and said, I, I want to leave here as soon as possible. And he said, okay. You know, and he said, hey, let's get out a pad and paper and, and maybe a calculator and see what this, see what this looks like. And he just talked to me about the cost of living and what it takes to live, you know, out in the real world at, at 13. It was especially difficult. And one of the things I took away from that was it's really hard out there being a grown-up. And, and I also found out I had it pretty easy at home. I, I had, you know, I had an identity. I was a Cassidy, and we, we have a pretty good family tree. You know, it's good to be part of that family. I had free food and free housing. Turns out my parents had you know, ambition for my, a plan for my life, and they were going to finance most of it. And, and so, so set before me on that table that morning was this choice between my identity and my provisions and protection and my purpose, and, or I could go live in a fort down the street that I had built. And I was thinking, I'm not going to live in the fort. I'm going to stay here. But the fact that I even thought about it, you have to be way past naive, right? I mean, I was, in a, I was in a good house. But I have to be, like, past naive to, to stupid, to ridiculously insane to think, right, that, that I, I would leave so much so that I might have the freedom to destroy my own life. I just, I just wanted to stay up late, you know. If I got to live in a fort to stay up late. So the question today that we're going to look at is what happens when, when people run away from God, what does God do? What happens when a nation runs away from home, how does God respond to that? How is God going to deal with a group of people that are constantly trying to get away from him and all the things he provides? That's what we're going to look at today. Now, to be able to do that, to see the power of, of this uh, attribute of God, we're going to have to study five chapters. And we're, so I'm going to, forgive me, we're going to blaze through these. I found the, what I felt like were the most effective passages to read. So we'll be reading this together and, and we'll see, you know, the big picture at the end of this. If you are a Bible nerd, I want you to pay attention to this because there's something very significant when we get to the end. It's inductive and, and you'll see that maybe. Now to get us up to speed where we are in our third week, of our Samuel series, that's what we're talking about, we saw that Israel is in this transition period of going from being ruled by judges to being ruled ultimately by a monarchy or kings. And it's, this is a big transition period of their time, and like many transition periods, maybe teenage years, these people are stupid. They are, they are, they are having crazy thoughts. And so the new bad guy that shows up to town is a group called the Philistines, and Israel goes to war with the Philistines, and they, we don't need your help, God. They lose. And then they think to themselves, we'll just use God. We'll use God like a lucky charm. And they, they take the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into war with them, thinking if they rub the lamp, God will do whatever they tell them to do. This time they lose in a spectacular way. They lose their entire army, they lose three priests, and they lose the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The next chapter, in what I would consider a very humorous chapter, God shows himself able to beat these, fear, you know, these fearsome Philistines with no help from any human beings. It's just the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. 
And he, does, he decimates them, he humiliates them, and they send the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord back to Israel with a lot of gold and an apology. After this, chapter 7, this is where there's a great repentance and there's this season of sanity. We're not going to look at chapter 7. This is when the people of Israel go, you know what? Maybe we should just stay with the Lord after all. And they allowed Samuel, who's the, you know, the, the hero of, of these stories, to be the judge. And they just do what Samuel says and peace and prosperity breaks out everywhere. They enjoy it. It's great to be in the house of the Lord for 50 years, for one generation. And then they wake up like they're 13 years old and they say, let's do something especially stupid today. Let's be crazy. Let's run away from home. Let's run away from the Lord and all that he is for us. And that's where chapter 8 picks up. And all, it says, all of the elders gather themselves together and sit down with Samuel and tell him the way it is. Here's what he says. And they say to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint for us a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Uh, but he, but he, when they said, give us a king to lead for us, this displeased Samuel. And they pray, so he prayed to Jehovah, and Jehovah told him, now listen, to all the people and all that they're saying, it's not that they've rejected you, they've rejected me, says the Lord. So it continues in verse 9, listen to them, the Lord says, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king will reign over them will claim as his rights. We'll come back to warn them solemnly. But I want you to see why this is such an insane action to ask for a king. It's not because they're asking for a king. That was always the plan. Deuteronomy 17, even, maybe even you could read into the Abrahamic covenant, but God wanted them to have a king. They're not asking for a king that would be a righteous good king that could lead them in a righteous way. They're not asking for a king that could speak to God for them or could speak for God to them. They're not asking for a king that would be a model of faith and surrender to God. They're in trouble because they want a king to be like everyone else. They want to be like everyone else. They want to give up the very things that make them separate, special, like no other nation that has ever existed. They want to give up their identity. They want to give up their protection and provision. They want to give up their purpose so they can be like everybody else. The very thing that they should be valuing the most is the thing they're discarding. Do you, do you hear that? Look, what it, look, look in Deuteronomy, look how special this nation is. There's never been any nation like this since then. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, God says, this is about their identity. From, from, one of, from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened or anything like this ever happened or even heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of the fire as you have and lived? <laughs> they got to live through that. As, has any God ever tried to take himself one nation out of another nation by the testings and the signs and the wonders and a war and a mighty hand and the outstretched arms or by a great and awesome deeds like all the things that Jehovah your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? That's never happened before. You are a very special people. You belong to God. There's no even stories or rumors or folklore or 
you know, mysteries about this kind of God for you, Israel. Not only are you unique in your identity because he did this for you, but also he protects and provides for you. The very next set of sentences, he says, uh, because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you the nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their land and give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. He protects them. He fights their war for them. He provides for them. He gives them purpose. He has identity. He gives them uh, protection and purpose. The purpose of Israel is to be God's nation on the earth where he can bless the rest of the world through this nation. He he does it first in the context of Moses and Joshua, then he does it through judges, but ultimately through a monarchy, ultimately through Jesus Christ. The world, the nations will be blessed because of you. And Israel says, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that. I mean, can you imagine being the owner of the Hope Diamond, right? The only one in the world, you know, you need two hands, right, to hold this thing, of of. Who knows what it's really worth because no one could pay for it. And then somebody looks up, that person who owns the Hope Diamond looks over and goes, but everybody else has like, I don't know, limestone little gravel chips. And so I don't, I don't want this thing of infinite worth. I want to I carry around a little pet rock. It's made out of granite or something. That's what they're trading. They're trading down. And, and they're trading God's view of them and purpose for them for to be like everyone else. Does that sound familiar? What's God's view for us? How does God look at us? And how easy are we willing to trade that to be like everyone else? God's view for us is, has to do identity and has to do with purpose as well. We've seen this as kind of a, a verse for the year here. First Peter chapter 2, for you are his chosen people. He's talking about us now, not Israel. He's talking, we are the chosen people a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And here's our purpose. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. He called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That passage says that we have a new identity and we are no longer common. We are God's very own possession. We are no longer stumbling along in trivia speak and shallow living, but we have the purpose of showing others the goodness of God because he took us out of darkness and into the likeness. And what do we want? We, we look over the fence and we see the way other people are living and say, wow, I wish I had what they had. And you can have it if you put down this identity and this purpose. All I want is a little freedom to destroy my life. That's all we're asking. When we want to be like others, there's a cost associated to that. It costs us what God has given. If we believe in what God says about us, our identity and our purpose, why would we want to leave that? Why would we want to run away from that? And, and, and so, but this happens so much in many of our financial experiences around the church. We, we sit down with someone and say, please do not make this financial decision because this much indebtedness is going to change your whole life. It's going to invade your marriage. It's going to cause you to be more stressed out than you need to be and cause friction that you can't afford right now. It's going to change the way you parent because you'll be so angry most of the time. And it's going to torque you, and it's going to keep you from from being generous when you want to be generous, and you'll be hamstrung. Please don't make this financial decision. And the answer is, I want to be like everyone else. 
Where do I sign? It's so costly to run away. It's so great to stay at home. So he goes into the cost of running away. Verse, let me just remind you, verse 9, it says, Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what a king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And so if you look carefully at this next paragraph, six times it's going to say he's going to take. And he's also going to take your very best because that's what it's like to live outside the house of God. And let me just read along and see if you guys want to pay this bill or not. It says, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim to be his. He will take your sons. Oh, he will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and his horses, and he will make them run in front of his chariots. And some of them he will assign his commanders over a 1,000, and some commanders over 50, and others, they're going to plow the ground and reap the harvest for him. And still others, they're going to make weapons for him and equip his chariots. Wait, wait. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to make them into perfumers and cooks and bakers. He's going to take the very best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves. He's going to give those to his attendants. He's going to take a tenth of your grain and, and, the, and, and the vintage uh, that you, to, to give to his officials and his attendants. <laughs> He's going to take your male and female servants, the best of your cattle, the best of your donkeys. He's going to take all of them for his own use, and he will take a tenth of your flocks. You want to pay this? You want to live outside in that fort? That's not all. The next thing he says, he will take you yourselves and you will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you're going to cry out for relief for, from this king that you have chosen, but Jehovah will not answer you in that day. And they said, oh my, thank you for telling me how much this costs because I didn't realize all that I was losing in identity and protection and purpose. They didn't say that. They said this. When that day cut, they said this. And when the people refused to listen to Samuel, they said, no, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's what they say. No, we still want to be like everyone else. And then Samuel heard what the people said and repeated it back to Yahweh. And Yahweh said, listen to them, give them the king. And they do. They get the king. And it costs them. It costs them what, what was unique to them and what, what should have been valued by them, their identity and their protection and provisions and their purpose in life. It costs them everything. And here's what really hurts. If you, know the, the, if you understand the chronology of this, they like tripped on the finish line. They'd waited 1,000 years for a king since Abraham's promise was given. They'd wait, waited over 400 years since Joshua inhabited the, uh, the promised land, and they actually gained some real estate. They waited about 50 years when Samuel, the last judge, 50 years. All they had to wait was 40 more years. David was supposed to be the first king. That's the king that God picks. And if they'd have just waited 40 more years, they'd have made it. You never trade down when you follow the Lord. You always trade up. And if they wouldn't have tripped on the finish line, if they'd have held their breath for one more generation, they could have made it. But instead, they go all in and lose it all. I mean, this happens, this happens in a lot of premarital counseling around here. It's one of the famous parts of the ministries here at Grace. It's a premier ministry, premarital counseling. We'd love to call it pre-engagement counseling because it's not uncommon for us to say, okay, now wait, you two back away from this. Okay, listen to me. 
I think you guys are scared and, and kind of lonely. But in two years of marriage, when you find out what love or, or, or loneliness inside of marriage is like, you're going to look back at your singleness and long for that day. Because loneliness in marriage is incomparable to loneliness outside of marriage. Do not get married. Do you want to come to the wedding? Is that a no, you're not coming? Because we, we don't need to send you an invitation. Okay. We want to be like everyone else, and all of our friends are married, so where do we sign? There's a cost for being like everyone else, and they pay it. They get their king. That's chapter, uh, chapter 9 and 10, ladies and gentlemen. The king you always wanted. Chapter 9 introduces him as there was this Benjamite, a man of great standing. He's wealthy, and his name was Kish. And Kish had a son named Saul, and he was handsome, and he was young, and he could be, as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was, he was a head taller than anyone else. Oh, well, there he is. He's our guy. He's on the cover of People Magazine. Chapter 24, 10, 24 says, Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man that Jehovah has, has chosen for you? There's no one like him among all the people. And the people shouted, long live the king. Chapter 11 is a story about how God in his grace gives this king Saul a push start by his grace. And lets him win a battle so that the people can enjoy what it's like to be a king, have a king. But Saul will not mention God or God's word as a means of, of direction or following from him. It's a foreshadowing of things to come. So after chapter, we've gone through 8 and 9 and 10 and 11, and so they have their king, and he's prettier and taller than anybody else's king. Okay. He's capable. He's from a good family. Eh, doesn't go to church much. But hey, what a, he's better than anybody else's king. And then chapter 12 is what we're, we're, we've been all leading up to. This is what I wanted to get to. Listen, you Bible nerds, listen carefully chapter 12, because this is a courtroom condemnation and a confrontation of Israel because they've chosen this king for the wrong reasons. And so the question that's being answered in this chapter is, what does God do with a nation that wants to run away from him? Okay. What happens to the people that reject God and say, we want to live our own way? What happens? How does God respond to his people that say, we don't want to be your people anymore. We want to be like everyone else. That's what chapter 12 answers. Okay. So first, Samuel confronts the people. Again, this, picture all of this in a courtroom. It'll make more sense that way. So in chapter 12, verse 7, Samuel says, okay, now then, stand there. See how it's a courtroom? Stand there. Because I'm going to confront you with the evidence before Yahweh as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord, Yahweh, and for you and for your forefathers. And so Samuel gives this long history of how God was a faithful, committed lover and protector of Israel from Egypt all the way through the judges, all the way to where they are now. Here's all the things God's done for you. And then, and then uh, verse 12, it says... But, but then you, and then when you saw the Ammonites were moving up against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though it was Yahweh, your God, who was your king. Now, here is the king that you have chosen, the one that you asked for. See, Yahweh has set this king over for you. 
And then he says, can this king provide for you? Can this king protect you like King God could, Yahweh? Let's see. And then he says this. Now he's calling down judgment on him. And then, now then, stand, here it is again, stand still and see what this great thing that Yahweh is about to do before your very eyes. Is, not, is it not wheat season right now, in the, the, dry, the dry season? I'm going to call on Yahweh to send thunder and rain, and then you'll realize what evil that you have done in the eyes of Yahweh when you asked for a king. You, you got a big, tall, handsome king. You run away from God and his identity and the provisions, his protection, and his purpose for your life. I'm going to call on God to reign in the drought and see how your king stops this. And crack, the lightning and thunder blaze through the place, and the people are judged by this storm. And that's when they realized, uh, whoops, living in a fort is not what we thought. We just wanted enough freedom to destroy ourselves, and this is what's happening. And now, 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 well, verse 19, then the people said to Samuel, pray to Yahweh your God, your God, right? And for your servants that we will not die, for we have added to all of our sins the evil in asking for a king. So here they are, covered in rain, watching their crops wash down the canals, and and they've come to their senses, They're living with the consequences of rejecting God and his provisions and power, and they realized, uh uh-oh. And so they repent, and they say, well, what can can we do? And and Samuel says, well, you ran away. So they repent because of the consequences. But sure, okay, that's all true and fine, but what does God do? That's what we've been talking about today. That's the big question, is what happens when we run away from God? What does God do? How, do we, how, how are we supposed to live in light of what he's going to do to us? Chapter 12, verse 20. Samuel says, do not be afraid, says Samuel. You have done all this evil. He's telling the truth. But turn, do not turn away from Yahweh, but serve Yahweh with all your heart. Turn away from evil and turn toward, towards Yahweh. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you guys ran away from home, but home never moved. So he said, you you guys left, but God is still here. You come back to him, and he will receive you again. He's saying God will will open his arms to you, but you have to come back. And so why? They asked for, they demanded a king four times. They finally get one. And God says, if you come back to me, I'll take you. Why? Why? What is the motive in God's heart that would would take this rebel nation back again. What is God thinking that would help us make sense out of his reception of them if, according to Samuel, they repent? Why would God do such a thing? Next verse is going to give us two reasons, and these two reasons are going to tell us a lot about God. Listen. For the sake of his great name, Jehovah will not reject his people. Two, because Yahweh was pleased to make you his own. What in the world in all of creation? Because of his great name, he will not reject you. In other words, that phrase means because of who he is, because of the very nature of God, because he is the promise keeper and the promise maker and the promise keeper, and and he's the one that does not move. 
And he, he, is, he is Yahweh. And for his great name, and for his great name's sake, and that's why, by the way, listen, this is not Old Testament value. Second Timothy chapter 2, it says, while we were faithless, the Lord remained faithful. He's the rock. We left the rock, come back to the rock, hasn't moved. And then the second reason it says, because he loves them. <laughs> the, Lord is, the Lord is pleased to make you his own. He's, he's pleased to, to make these guys his own. Why? Don't ever try to answer that question. Love is stronger than reason. Pascal said, the heart has reasons that the mind could never understand. And this is one of those. <laughs> why? I don't know why. It's because of his namesake, the nature of who he is, and he is pleased to just call us his. Now, Bible nerds, does this outline or language sound familiar to you at all? The language that he's talking about, or the outline is especially uh, important, where he introduces the characters and then goes through the history and then writes out the expectations and then has a miracle seal and then has a signing. That outline is a covenant. And that outline is very pronounced in the minds of the people listening. A covenant is a very important thing. It's so important that we named our church after it because this is the grace covenant God. And so we named this church the grace covenant church because covenants are the means by which people communicated to each other commitment. And this outline was used for centuries between kings and his people. It's called the Caesarean Vassal Treaty. And everybody knew the outline. And so when they heard chapter 12 start rolling out, they're going, wait a minute. This is like, you know what, some of you guys are in communities, love languages. This is the love language of God to his people. They knew this language is what I'm trying to tell you. I'm trying to tell you when they heard chapter 12, they went, wait a minute. This is a covenant renewal ceremony, and it makes sense that the same ceremony was used when they left the desert. It makes sense that it happened at the beginning of Joshua before they entered the conquest. It makes sense they did it at the end of Joshua when they finished the conquest. What doesn't make sense is that after we've run away from God and rejected his identity and rejected his purpose and rejected his provisions, he's making a covenant renewal right here. Okay, let me put it another way. They show up to court. It says stand twice. Stand and listen to the judge. And what does the judge say? And they're in, they're in this court of law, and they're thinking it's a divorce court. And we left him. We cheated on him. This is it. Now read the decrees of the divorce. And then God starts repeating his marriage vows. I will never leave you or forsake you, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. That's what they heard because it was in a form of a covenant. And God was renewing the Mosaic covenant at this time. <laughs> to this runaway nation. Some of you, if you're not the Bible nerd, you missed the punch. But hey, if it doesn't sound like a covenant renewal, could it possibly sound like another story that you might know? the most famous three-act story that's ever been told. There once was a man, and he had two sons. And the younger son said, I want to run away from home. I want as much money as I have coming to me. Give it to me now. 
And that young son says that he, he went off <laughs> in a faraway land because he wanted to get as far away from his father as he possibly could. And he, did, he squandered his wealth on wild living, it says. Act one, a little boy sick at home. Act two, a boy homesick. Because then it says that the young man ran out of resources and a, and a drought hit and he found himself in need living with the consequences of living in a fort. He hired himself out to work for a pig farmer. It's a Jewish story. Jews and pig farming. The, utter, the worst set of humiliation. And it says this. He's working with those pigs, and he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. How long do you have to live in that fort before you start looking at pig slop and going, I wonder if there'll be any leftover for me? And then, and then, and then, when he came to his senses, Sick at home, homesick, home again. Says his dad was always looking for him, and he saw him at a distance and had great compassion for him. And so the father ran. A gentleman walks, he never runs. And he ran, and he grabbed his son, and he hugged his son. And the son said, you know, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and I don't deserve to be called your son. I've just come back to look for a job. And the father said, get me. You see, when you're in the house of God, it's not about what you lose, what the king takes. When you're in the house of the Lord, you get, it says, Get me the best robe. And he puts the best robe around his son and a ring. You're not an employee. You have my identity. Get him some shoes. You're no slave. You run the place. Kill the fatted calf. We are going to celebrate tonight because this son of mine that was lost, he's found. This son of mine that was dead, he's alive. That's what God does when runaways come home. Does that story sound familiar? God hasn't changed. That's the way he does things. These are Jesus' words. He says, there's so much rejoicing in heaven when that one runaway returns. More so than when the 99 who don't repent, don't, they don't do anything. And why does he do that? Why does the father run? Why does he drape him in the, in the coat and the ring and the shoes? For his namesake. Because that's the way he is. And he enjoys loving us. Don't think about that. Just drink it in. Chapter 12 in 1 Samuel is a covenant renewal ritual. 
to remind us of the nature of God and the way he is. Does anybody want to remember a covenant today? That's what this is. This is a covenant, not a renewal, but this is a covenant reminder, communion, the Lord's table. And just, you know, this is how we do it at our church at, at Grace. If, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's a family meal. We'd love you to dine with us. And if you don't mind, just, ta- you know, if you'll just hold your bread and, and drink until we all drink it together because it is a communal event. Anybody need to come home? Anybody need to come home? You guys can start passing out the, the bread right now. Three things in Israel, three things in the story of the prodigal son. You have to come to your senses. You have to see that there's a need that you have, and only God can meet that. You need to come to your senses. And you need to take responsibility, too. You need to take responsibility for the decisions you've made. That you were insane, you were crazy, you made choices, and used your freedom to destroy your life and the life of other people that you love, I'll bet. And you take responsibility for that. That's what the bread will be in our time together. Coming to our senses and doing an inventory of what we might need to do to make things right. Come on home. Come on home. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and reminded them about the, it was a Passover meal and he said, this bread is my body. It will be broken for you. This is how I, this is how Jesus will restore your relationship with the holiness of the Father. Take this, remember this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. You guys can distribute the wine. When we look at this next part of this covenant reminder called the Lord's table, let's look at the third thing. We come to our senses, we take responsibility, and then we renew the covenant with God and move on. You renew the covenant with God and you move on. You let the power of Christ, the power of the Spirit of God, take shame and turn it into honor. Let debt be inherited by Jesus so you might inherit his righteousness, that you might be powerless and you inherit the power of the Spirit in your life. What do you do with what's left? The rebel that's returned, you turn that over to the Lord and he will make more out of what's left than you ever envisioned before you left home in the first place. As you pass this, could you think about something optimistic? The power of God in a repentant heart's life. Renew the covenant and move on. Renew your vows to your wife and move on. Renew your promises to your children and move on. This story has not been about you. It's not about me. It's not about people. It is about the power of the love of God for his namesake and because he likes to love us.
On that same night, Jesus took the cup and he says, new covenant. Won't be a lamb. Jesus said, I'll be that lamb. This is the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled, Jesus says. Take this cup and remember. Come to Jesus. Come to his throne. Come to Jesus. He is our king. Let's take this in memory of that. Let's pray a prayer of gratitude, shall we? For his name's sake, Lord Jesus, we are so grateful. God the Father, we are so pleased for your name's sake that you are that God, that you would receive us back in our anger and resentment towards you, that we just want to run away so that we might have the freedom to destroy our lives and the lives around us. And on that moment when we live with enough consequences that we would have that need and come to our senses that you'd receive us back. We are so grateful for the consistent characteristic love that you have for us, that you are pleased to make us yours. We are forever grateful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.